You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. My next guest is someone I haven't spoken to for many, many weeks, and I'm about to rectify that situation. His name is Chris Gilmore. We've been speaking, well, I don't know, for around about 15 years, I, I think, Chris, and he's now an independent analyst. And I thought of you the other day because I was watching the BBC, and you know they have the, the headlines coming across at the bottom of the screen, and it said, Scotland mulling idea of closing pubs and restaurants when the whole world had closed down you were just considering <laughs> whether, whether to close the pubs and I know of course uh, the public house environment and culture is a terribly important part of Scottish life but seriously this is an unprecedented time in which we live. It is indeed Lindsay as you, as you rightly say um, we've been through many market changing events in the past but nothing uh, on this scale uh, not, nothing as global as this um, and nothing as profound as this. Um, and look, people have, have, have differing opinions as to, as to how this thing should be tackled. And, um, you know, we just have to wait and see how effective all these various lockdowns in parts of the world are. My view is actually very simple. You can't divorce the economic uh, reality from the, the virus uh, physical reality. And at some point in time, some very brave politicians are going to have to make some incredibly difficult decisions. And those will revolve around um, uh, determining whether you get people back to work. I mean, and, and Donald Trump is already kind of suggesting that uh, because he, I think he's, he's absolutely petrified of the, the, the impact on his uh, re-election campaign. And, um, and whether you, uh, pres- or, or, or whether you preside over millions uh, of people dying. Yes, you know, sorry to interrupt you. Mr. Trump, of course, is self-serving. He only cares about one person. He doesn't care, even care about his family, I don't think. He cares about himself and his re-election because of that, that will fuel his yes. ego and he'll get a second term, as Mr. Obama did. Now, the problem with that is that it ignores the facts, the scientific facts. And Mr. Trump is not, uh, President Trump is not a scientist, of course. And if he mm. says, well, we've, yeah. we can get back in weeks rather than months, then I think, I think he's really sort of flying in the face of the people that he stands up with in front of the podium at the White House press conference. You can almost see those people wincing when he says certain things. So I wouldn't take Mr. Trump too seriously. Yeah. No, look, I, you, I only take him seriously because he is the most powerful man on earth. That is, is the only reason. Um, and and I, I, I completely concur with, with all, all of your comments relating to him. Um, and if you go back in history and you look at the, the various um, Asian flu-type pandemics that you've had, uh, between 1968 and 72. That took four years. Um, and to be honest, um, I, it took me a long time to, to, to actually recollect any of that at all. It kind of passed me by. Um, but uh, around about a million people died worldwide in that one. Um, the 1957 uh, pandemic, the Asian flu pandemic, between one and two million people died. Uh, and then, of course, you had the big daddy of them all. In 19, from 1918 to about 1920, it was about a two-year thing. Um, when upwards of 40 to 50 million people around the world died. Um, this thing we've got now is very different in the sense that there is no vaccine for it. No, nobody's got immunity to it. It's a novel virus. And that makes it particularly difficult. And it's already mutated maybe uh, once or twice uh, in this, since it's been around, um, which again makes formulating a vaccine that much more difficult. So, yeah, to say it's going to be over in weeks really is, is trivializing the thing to a, to a very large extent. But having said that, uh, as I say, somebody somewhere or a grouping of people 
is going to have to take the very difficult uh, decision about uh, when you start trying to normalize things. Because by definition, you can't have a situation persisting forever. And when, when I say forever, I mean <laughs> six months uh, to a year to two years, effectively, as far as markets are concerned, as far as economies are concerned, is, is, is near as damn it, forever. Yes, it is. And it started out as something, and Mr. Trump uh, for once was quite right. He said this is not an economic or a financial crisis. And that was when there was only one case of a coronavirus infection in the United States of America. And that was a Chinese national who had flown to the United States. If I'm not mistaken, it was January the 23rd. I write these things down somewhere. I can't find them at the moment. But now it has become an economic crisis and a financial crisis. And because of the way the world is at the moment, if this had happened in 1918, people would have just been allowed to die. They wouldn't have been the resources, they wouldn't have been the respirators, yeah. they wouldn't have been the hospital beds, the world was just recovering from the Great War, and that's a bad word, but it was the Great War, and no one would have batted an eyelid if a few hundred thousand people had died, because we, we, we were used to dying in those days, after four years of war. Today, of course, with social media, with constant 24-hour uh, coverage of this whole thing, we, we can't be like that, and therefore people are panicking, and people are being being isolated like you are in South Africa, like I am in the Netherlands, like a lot of people are in the United Kingdom as well. So it's completely different, not just because of the nature of the virus, but because of the nature of society and the way that we communicate, Chris. Yes, no, you're quite right. And I think social media and the mainstream media have got a lot uh, to uh, play a big part in all of this. Um, and if I might say, I think they've been a bit one-sided in, in all of this. It's, it's, been, it's been very sensational. So, I mean, I think back to a couple of days ago when you saw, um, uh, what's the chappie's name? Um, I've forgotten the fellow from Sky News who's currently in Italy, you know, dressed up in a hazmat suit in the, the ward where these, I mean, poor people had been dying at a rate of knots yes. in Italy. Um, but nowhere do you see them talking to the recoveries. And the recoveries have been substantial and profound. So, again, don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to minimize this in any way, shape or form. I just feel that it is a bit one-sided and a bit sensational. Um, and again, it's not something you can trivialize. Uh, death is death. And it's, uh, it's, it's really, it's raw and it's horrible and it's grim and it's grisly. But um, maybe they're doing it to try and shock people into, um, into, into doing something. Um, but there again, that's not their business. That's the business of government. Exactly. I think the media is, again, to a certain extent, self self-serving because bad news travels fast. If there's some good news, oh, yes. you tell two or three people. If there's bad news, you tell a dozen people. We know that and the media knows that. So it is playing up to it. Although I must say there are certain stations that are treating the situation sensitively. And you can almost see the pain on the face of the presenters, whether they're good actors or actresses, I don't know. Recoveries, incidentally, um, this morning uh, reached the number of 100,000. The 100,000 documented cases of coronavirus infections in the, in the hundreds of thousands, maybe 320,000, something like that. Of that, 100,000 people have survived. So it is pretty good. But let's get on to the, the economic ramifications of this. When somebody yeah. asked me around about two to three weeks ago, no, about two weeks ago, actually, he said, what do you think of the coronavirus and the reaction? I said, I think it's, at the time anyway, I thought it was an overreaction to an 
underreaction. Then, uh, a few days later, I said to myself, no, that was wrong. It's morphed into something else now. This is an underreaction to a gross underreaction. Now I don't know what it is. I think it's probably an appropriate reaction to an underreaction. And I don't know where we're going from here. But there's certainly been a, a complete change in the way that people have looked at this from a governmental point of view over the last three to four weeks. No, I think you're right. Uh, if I were to put a, a, an interpretation, I would say it's been the wrong reaction in, in most instances. Yes. Um, if, you, if you look at the successful nations, um, let's park China to one side for the moment, because, I mean, um, and, 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 and this might sound controversial, but they started it. Um, uh, it came out of China, as have virtually all of the zoonotic uh, transmission uh, diseases like Spanish flu, like SARS, like the Asian pandemic in, of 1957, and so on and so forth. Um, but if we look at South Korea, for example, um, that was fascinating. They realized very early on that you had to get people tested very rapidly and that you had to do a kind of lockdown so that you could try and get on top of the, the situation and flatten out the, 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 the trajectory of, of new cases. And that has proven to be very, very successful. China has been very successful purely because it's a, a totalitarian state. And of course, they, they did the right thing by, well, when I say they did the right thing, I mean, a lot of uh, people in, in Wuhan were actually physically locked in their apartments. They couldn't get out. And for a period of, what, two to three weeks, who knows? Many of them may well have starved to death. We, we, we don't know. Uh, and I suspect we'll never know. So it was a real uh, sledgehammer to crack a nut thing. But they definitely got on top of it. And although there's a, there's a, there are a few instances of reinfection coming through now, the Chinese um, were, were very, very effective in getting on top of it. But the one big takeaway from all of this, and this is where I think nobody is, is actually looking at this, we, we must learn from this because, as I say, all of these, literally every single one of these pandemics, and I'm, I'm including here Ebola and um, MERS, they're all zoonotic. In other words, they've been transmitted from human to animal. And it's not. we're going to have another one and another one and another one if the Chinese authorities particularly do not get on top of um, the, the, this type of thing. You know, I mean, it's, it's a cultural thing. It's deeply embedded in the Chinese culture that uh, eating snakes and bats and pangolins and stuff like that is okay. But, you know, this is, this is what has caused this. Um, and, you know, if, if we're going to survive another one, who knows, the next one might have a fatality rate of not 1% or half a percent or 2%, but of 20%. And then you are looking at an Armageddon situation. And so of course, now I think it's, it's yeah. yeah. And, and and of course, the interconnectivity of the world, especially with the era of, of cheap air travel, there's no air travel anywhere in the world at the moment, especially yeah. with uh, Singapore Airlines cutting 98% of its capacity and me looking out my window now at the blue sky in Rotterdam and not seeing one contrail from an aircraft, whereas normally there would be uh, five or six of them. Uh, the fact is that when things do stabilize and people get back to their normal life and more people travel, more people become wealthy, prices of airline flights become cheaper, then it, these things are going to happen more and more frequently, I would say, especially as people become more exotic in their tastes as well, uh, because people are traveling. I mean, did you 30 years ago, did you know anyone that had ever been to Bali or to China? No. <laughs> it's no, like going to no. Mallorca now. That's right. 
And as you say, the prices have come right down. Uh, more and more competitors have come into the field. Sure, there have been a lot of failures from time to time, and there'll be a, and there'll be some spectacular failures um, in, in this one. But um, and you know, governments are going to have to come to the party. I mean, I I, I saw in the Sunday Times in the UK um, the weekend that British Airways is on the on, on the verge of being nationalised again, as is Virgin. Hmm. Um, and the story I hear is that uh, they'll, they'll keep Virgin, um, keep British Airways, and let Virgin go, go to the wall because it's been losing money now for the past six or seven years. Quite right, too. Um, so, so there's a, a bit of bit of a shakeout taking place here. Um, um, what it'll mean for your your, your average traveller, what it'll mean for the global the tourist economy, um, we, we have yet to see. Look, I still remain confident. I mean, I, I'm not, I wouldn't go the, the, the Trump route. I mean, we're certainly not going to get back to normal within weeks. But I do think that uh, once we get past these lockdown stages, because by definition, they, they cannot last forever, as we said a few moments ago. Um, once we get past that stage, there will be this pent up demand for travel, for travel and tourism. Uh, and in the first instance, people are probably going to have to pay up a bit more than they otherwise would have. And the availability will not be there immediately. And it'll be fascinating to see how many of these airlines uh, emerge from bankruptcy. It was a fascinating conversation I had with a previous commentator, Chris, and we were talking about the airline industry. You know those places in the in the desert in the United States of America where old airplanes go to die? You know, these graveyards. Oh, the yes. yes, the boneyards. Apparently... There have been 80,000 requests for slots in the boneyards for, from airlines just because they've got nowhere to put them. They can't leave them at an airport because the airport charges them these exorbitant fees. So they're just saying, can we fly it into, into the Nevada desert and stick it there for a while until things get better? Not 2,000, 3,000 or 8,000, but 80,000 aircraft. Isn't that astonishing? <laughs> that is mind-boggling. That really is absolutely mind-boggling. I know. Let's have a look at something else mind-boggling because the, only, the, the data is just starting to filter through from the world's economies, both developing and developed. And from the developed world, um, Japan has just cancelled the Olympics, which is, must have cost them a fortune and will continue to do so until and if they are restaged in 2021. Their PMI, their Purchasing Managers Index, uh, came out, uh, I think it was this morning. It was yeah, the previous month uh, just below 50, just be below the cutoff point of 50. Above 50, of course, signifies manufacturing expansion. And below 50, manufacturing contraction came in at 32.7 from just below 50. Ooh, that is, this, no. is, this is early data. Now, imagine yeah. in the next one to two months what we're going to get on GDP from the States, from Italy, from the United Kingdom, from the Eurozone in general, from Australia and everywhere else. It's going to be numbers that we couldn't even have imagined in modern expansionary times. Yes. And, you know, as, as I say, these are extraordinary times. Uh, if you look at the kind of forecast that Goldman Sachs are putting out, um, you're looking at second quarter GDP in the, in the U.S. Uh, declining by, wait for it, 24% quarter and quarter. Mm. Um, and you have to take that with a little bit of a pinch of salt. But, you know, it's probably not too far away from what is going to be a consensus. Um, they are looking for a rebound in third and fourth quarter. But bear in mind, that's quarter and quarter. So if you've got such a low base in, in your second quarter, it would, it would be very surprising if you didn't get some kind of bounce. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And they are also looking for a 9% unemployment rate in the States for the, 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 the 2020 average. And I can go along with that. Now, James Bullard from the Fed is coming out with some real scare stuff. 
he he reckons there could be a uh, I think it's a 30% unemployment rate in the states, um, and I, I and I, I I've just poo pooed that. I mean, that's just I don't think that's possible. But I think what it is showing you is that uh, a lot of that employment that has taken part, place in the U.S. over a number of years has not been what I'd call sustainable employment. It's been a lot of um, itsy-bitsy employment. It's not STEM-type jobs, you know, um, scientific, engineering. It's burger uh, flippers, in other words. Thank you. That's exactly what it is. Baristas, this type of thing. Yes. Uh, the, The kind of jobs that go hand in hand with a booming economy. Now, when you get a vicious turnaround like this, uh, then by definition, those kind of jobs are going to fall away, and they have fallen away. And uh, so we're definitely going to see a big upturn in U.S. unemployment. But that all comes back, and the same in the U.K., and 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 the same here. That all comes back to the essential proposition that there isn't such a thing uh, as a magic money tree. And you can have as many fancy QEs and other stimulatory um, uh, systems as you like. At the end of the day, the world will physically run out of money if, if we carry on with, with, with this type of thing. That's why I keep on coming back to this, this basic proposition that there is a time limit in this. And that at some point in time, uh, the harsh, the really very grim, horrible, harsh decisions are going to have to be made. Talking about jobs, every single Thursday, the United States releases something called initial jobless claims. In other words, how many people are filing for unemployment benefits? That's essentially what it is. Mm-hmm. Last week, uh, the, sorry, the previous week, it was 220,000 people. It jumped to 281,000 people last Thursday. Goldman Sachs is saying that it could be between two and two and a half million this Thursday because of the culling of the jobs that you've just been talking about, the baristas and the burger flippers and other people in the hospitality industry, the people with the jobs that are not exactly exactly um, considered critical for the economy. They're going to be culled like baby seals. This is an incredible number. If you got two, even if you got one million, that would still be staggering, Chris. Yeah. I mean, even if you'd had half a million, it would be staggering. Um, Because that would be more than a doubling of of the previous. And that's why I say we're living in quite extraordinary times. So, you know, I I, I think it's because... um, <laughs> because of the media, because of social media, we've now been, um, we're now punch drunk. We're now rolling around on the ropes. Uh, we're not sure which way to turn. You've got um, this new chancellor in the, in, in the UK being very innovative and very deft. And we, we've got the US coming out with all these different type of programs. Um, we've even got Arch Hawk, uh, Lasecha Kanyago, coming out and dropping interest rates by 100 basis points. I think he's going to have to drop it by another 100 basis points next week, by the way. Um, and again, things like, uh, like this, we, you, you could never have countenanced them even a few weeks ago. So you put it all together and you mix it up in this, this wonderful cocktail we've got. Um, if enough people... Um, believe that they're never going to work again. That's a massive change in mindset. And I think the, the, the possibility of civil in, insurrection in many countries uh, large as loom. Looms it, large, sorry. Exactly. You're quite right. And I was going to say that, but about the social implications of what is going on from the virus perspective and also the knock-on effects for the economy, 
and the financial world, uh, but we haven't got time for that. But I think the social implications and the way that we go about our daily lives, uh, short, medium and long term, the implications are going to be manifold. Because if you just look at yourself, uh, Chris, what you have done, you don't work for a financial institution anymore. So maybe you're insulated from this because you're used to working from home and being a freelancer like I am. But there are people that I speak to every day, they say they're going out of their minds. They can't go down the pub, they can't watch football, they're staying at home, they're with the wife, they're with the kids, uh, they're on their own, whatever it is. They love to go to the water cooler in the office and get a cup of coffee and chat to the people in HR and all that sort of thing and kid back and forth. Some people are going bonkers. Yes. No, no, you're right. Uh, It's going to have major social impacts uh, around the world and in in different countries it'll be be very different. Um, Look, I think the Chinese, funnily enough, have have adapted to it probably a lot better than most uh, because many of them live a a fairly solitary sort of existence uh, in their cooped up in their little apartments um, and they've had to put up with having this kind of one-child thing policy for so many, many years. Um, And that's maybe why they're so good at uh, games and stuff like that because they've they've had to make their own entertainment um so yeah but in, in the west it's a very different thing people are sociable well most people and um mm-hmm. you know they want to they, they want to get on with other people and they want to throw ideas around and this type of thing and yes you can still do it and one good thing that will come out of this i think is the ability to do more and more um teleconferencing more and more skyping or microsoft teams as it's called now um and all this type of thing and not wasting a lot of time and effort and fuel. Um, I mean, you, you, you see what the, the NASA photographs have been taken above Wuhan over the past few weeks. And by the way, those, those skies are still pretty clear, yes. uh, suggesting that um, factory output is not nearly as big as the Chinese would, would, would have you believe. Um, so pollution has certainly come down. I think uh, the, the way of the world will change. The more and more people will be working from home. But, you know... I think at the end of the day, most people, as you, as you rightly say, don't actually like to be working from home flat out all the time. They do savour the ability to go and socialise. And obviously, I mean, in the UK, <laughs> where you, you touched on it with the Scottish pub culture, the English pub culture, if anything, is even, even more uh, prevalent. And I think the, the locals must be going absolutely out of their minds with, with, with boredom. Um, so again, it's another factor that tells me that there is a limited life lifespan to all of this. Very final question, and we need to bring this back to making some money out of it somehow. Uh, I've got one thing to say to you, and this is a personal view, and that is gold. It really just stands out as the most obvious thing. You don't have to be clever to understand this especially if people think Mm. that the financial system worldwide may come to a halt at some stage and there might be hyperinflation because of the massive amount of stimulus that is being pumped into the financial system. Whatever, but it's a simple argument, but gold, what would you be doing now? Yeah, look, I understand the story about gold, and I've been very surprised that gold hasn't reacted more than it it has up until now, Uh, and for all the reasons that you've mentioned, Lindsay. Um, And I think all of those reasons are still yet to unfold. Um, I mean, if we look at oil, for example, it's, um, it's, it's down at, at, at multi-year lows. And uh, that is one of the things going against the, the inflation thing at, at this point. But of course, that's going to change as well once we, get, once we get a turnaround. Inflation is going to rear its ugly head. So gold, yes, I, I think there's no doubt about it. There's, there's certainly a place for the barber's relic here. Um, with that one caveat that I really think it, it, would have, it should have done an awful lot better by now because 
because it's, it's usually regarded as being the the indicator of, of financial Armageddon. Chris, I, I don't um, want to call you naive, but have you been in the market as long as I have? Probably even a few years longer. You know what happens when there's a contagion, a financial contagion. It doesn't matter what you've got. You look at your list, you look at the, the Gilmore portfolio, and you say, well, I've got South African stocks, I've got 20%, I've got 30% overseas, I've got 25% in cash, which I'll keep, and I've got 5% in gold. Which one is making money? Oh, gold's making money, let me get rid of that. It's the geared people, the people that are trying to raise some money to pay for their margin calls elsewhere all those people are now at the market yes, yes. and Quite right. exactly so now we're 1608 it was 1460 just a week ago up three and a half percent today up 54 dollars the gold gold's yeah. time will come it'll be 2000 before the end of the year actually before the end of the summer look i i think you're probably right um and yeah but i mean i i, I suspect the the gearing that comes into play is more it will be more to due will be more due to specific stocks. Now that's the difficult part. I mean, I watched um, Jim Rogers, yes, and of course he was punting gold. He was punting gold, but this is literally about three weeks ago. And then he said, "Buy airline stocks." And then, with retrospect, of course, that's about the worst advice you could possibly have given. Um, <laughs> but all I'm all I'm cautioning is that um, yes, there, there will be a time to to get into certain stocks, but that's not now. And in the meantime, gold is probably as good as you, you, you're going to get. I think it is. Chris, I've kept you for far too long. Thank you so much for your insight. Chris Gilmore is an independent analyst and can be reached how, Chris? Would you like people to get in touch with you? Yeah, um, I'm on Chris G. Gilmore. That's C-H-R-I-S double G-I-L-M-O-U-R at gmail.com. That's Chris Gilmore. We'll speak very soon, Chris, and take it, take it easy out there with the soon-to-be-imposed lockdown in South Africa starting on Thursday. That's Chris Gilmore. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position or opinion of any other agency, organisation, employer or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.